1: Welcome back. I am Seth Leapson. As we head into hour two of our daily three hour tour, it is a delight to welcome back to this show. Professor Wilfred Riley. He's a professor of political science at Kentucky State University, author of several books, uh, Taboo, Ten Facts You Can't Talk About and Hate Crime Hoax. How the left is selling a fake race war had a really important essay in uh, the May issue of Commentary magazine, The New Definition of Racism. And I thought I would catch up with him on this, of all the conversations we had. We haven't talked about this essay with him, especially in light of, uh, or in the wake of uh, the commemoration of Juneteenth. Professor Riley, welcome back. Thanks for joining us.
2: Oh, thanks as always for having me. Glad to be on the show.
1: You betcha. Great essay you have. Um, uh, the new definition of racism. You open up uh, by saying words have to mean things and that this isn't a glib throwaway line. I agree with you. And I think part of part of our Part of our consternation these days is a lot of redefinition. I'm trying to remember exactly how, uh, how uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson put it, but something about uh, the corruption of uh, language is followed by the corruption of man. And you take it uh, to the issue of discussing racism, because a lot of modern scholarship seems to be changing original meanings. Tell us what you're talking about, sir.
2: Yeah, well, I started off the essay by noting, essentially, what you just said, that the sort, the modern conversation between sort of the social justice left, what we now call the woke movement, all the way over to the quote-unquote dissident right, a lot of this involves the redefinition of terms to such an extent that the ordinary taxpayer doesn't know what the hell people are talking about. And I broke down a couple of these. Like, when I started looking at the Title IX debate on college campuses, I was very surprised to find that rape, I mean, it's a blunt word, but was often used as a synonym for, essentially, sex that involved alcohol that people later regretted. Right. I mean, that's not good. That's not, quote-unquote, gentlemanly. But when you see something like an increase in incidence of sexual assault, you have to ask, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. And I give five or six of these examples, going all the way down to free will. Mm -hmm. but. Then I turn to the idea of racism, and I point out that if you look at Ibram Kendi, Robin DeAngelo, a lot of well-known scholars today, what they mean by racism isn't genetic or ethnic bias against people of another race, which is what racism is. Um, what they mean is essentially any system that produces any difference in results for, it, for any two groups of people. So in all of his books, Stamped and How to Be an Anti-Racist and How to Raise an Anti-Racist and Anti-Racist Toddler and so on down the line, Kendi has a really consistent definition of racism. He argues that the only two reasons that might cause any gap between people, say, Irish-Americans and Jamaican-Americans, are either, one, some kind of deep-seated, he uses the term fundamental inferiority, and I think he really means genetic inferiority, Hmm. or two, some kind of racism, no matter how subtle, how hard to track, how hard to find it is. So every time we see a gap in performance between people, we can assume we found racism. And the thing to do is to remove the racist thing that's causing the gap. So, for example, blacks underscore whites, Latino symptoms underscore blacks on the SAT exam, so the SAT exam is racist and we need to get rid of it. And in reality, of course, this is this is nonsensical. There are things that have nothing to do with race and nothing to do with genetics or kind of metaculture, like how much people in different groups have spent studying for the last couple of decades that predict how you're going to do on, for example, that exam. But this idea has become very popular. And last since I mean, there are obviously counters to it. I mean, the most basic is that Asians and Nigerian immigrants and many other groups of Jewish Americans almost invariably outperform the white majority. So there's no way to make the argument that every gap or every performance difference is due to some kind of prejudice, unless you're claiming that this is a... Korean supremacist country, but these these groups are just sort of ignored. Or you hear an argument like, "Well, they're embracing whiteness, and more and more people seem to be moving toward this this new standard." And the the article is about the problems with that.
1: Yes, and about this issue of systems rather than uh, you know the discrimination is more about systems than it is about individual or or or, or group hate. Let me let me pick it at uh, something you just said. When we look at disparate disparate outcomes, perhaps using an SAT, or some kind of standardized test, and you make the argument you made, usually what we will hear from the opposite side is, well, you have to understand there's a history before that took place ten- decades and centuries before that test was taken that has led to these kind of disparate group outcomes. To be more specific, when you look at the legacy of uh, uh, uh bigotry, racism, even going back to slavery, you have to take that into account in understanding disparate groups scores that uh, that 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 the that the majority of Americans did not go through. That's usually what you hear in response
2: well yeah, i mean it's it's just sort of an endlessly reductionist god of the gaps argument. like wow. my problem is more with the terminology itself, but it is worth pointing out for a second that that argument is is very weak. Okay. So if, if you take, for, for example, the thing I normally look at in published scholarly pieces is income. Uh-huh. There's about an 18-19% gap between black and white adults when it comes to income, and this is almost universally attributed to racism. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think that's fair to say. Mm-hmm. Now, if you really adjust for anything, like the fact that the most common age for a black man is 27 and the most common age for a white man is 58, um, this gap starts closing. Roland Fryer, who's a great quantitative social scientist, found just a couple of months ago that if you take black and white women that are the same age and that have the same level of education and the same test scores, the black women actually make, I think, it goes 12% more than the white women. Mm-hmm. So that that's multivariate analysis, as you know. So you have the gap, and then you adjust for age and region and IQ score, and the gap goes away, and you get it down to usually 2 or 3%, which is probably the actual effect of racism. And so... When you when I first presented this at you know conferences or in, in commentary articles, so sure. on, I thought the debate was kind of over.
1: Yeah. That
2: yeah, people would just have to say, "Oh, okay, well, Southern white kids, African American kids need to study more. We need to help with that because these are often poorer families." But no, the re- response is just to move the, the starting point back one. Right. So, okay, well, the reason for those lower test scores yeah. is racism. Right. It could be that that teachers spend less time with black boys or something like that. Right. Again, like, if you look at that, I I don't want to go on and on with this, but the Brookings Institute did in 2017. They found that the biggest predictor of test scores is how much time you spend studying. And again, many minority groups, including all Asian groups, spent more time studying than white.
1: And this would be true of uh, other uh uh what's the term of art i want to use here black immigrant groups nigerians barbadians ghanaians trinidadians that 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 do so well in america this would be true of them of of those groups as well education commitment
2: yeah i mean that's absolutely right like wikipedia actually has uh, britannica does as well if you're a little suspicious of the uh, edited <laughs> by just random kids online but i mean there there are multiple major lists of us and british groups by uh, individual and household income and one of the most amazing things, if you look at that list, when it comes to incomes by group, is that almost every black immigrant group, the one exception is, I think, somalis does better than black Americans and about as well as white Americans. Yeah. So they're not at the exact top of the list where you have, like, recent immigrants from Australia and so on. But if you look at, like, top 40, top 60, you've got Nigerians, Ghanaians, Jamaicans, people from all the islands, so on down the line. And all those groups are making about sixty-four to seventy-five thousand a year, versus a solid sixty-nine for white. So again, I don't. I don't think you can say either group is doing dramatically better. But you can say these black immigrants study as much as white guys, and they're doing almost identically as well. Yeah. And okay. Asians study even more, even bigger families, and they're they're doing a little better. And that that seems kind of like what we should be focusing on. But again, the the argument will just you'll just move it back a step. Well, their ability to study is due to their lack of. Generational right. racial trauma. I don't. I don't think the goal of this kind of argument really is to solve problems.
1: Okay, because they keep dialing back to something that's insolvable.
2: Sort of. I mean, well, I, I, one of my sneaking suspicions is that a lot of upper middle class mom type liberals are in fact sort of low key genetic hereditarians. Like mm-hmm. what they're what they're really mm-hmm. talking about mm-hmm. is a theory that. These black and Spanish immigrants probably could never get up to their relaxed suburban lifestyle. And we need to be kind of kindly about this and give a permanent excuse to yeah. members of those groups. Like yeah. I think that I think that's very often what's being said.
1: Oh, I think that runs I think that runs deeply through a lot of the suburban thought patterns, you you bet. I gotta hit a quick commercial break. Can I pick up with you on the importance of family formation and all of this too and then talk a little bit about criminal justice with you as well, sir? Do you have time for one more segment? Sure, do. Yeah, much appreciated. Thank you, Professor Riley. We're talking to Wilfred Riley, professor of political science at Kentucky State University. His May uh, essay in the com- in Commentary magazine, "The New Definition of Racism." His books, check them out at Amazon, wherever you go online to pick up books. Taboo: Ten Facts You Can't Talk About. Also, Hate Crime Hoax: How the Left Is Selling a Fake Race War. Doctor Riley and I will be right back. Welcome back to The Seth Liebson Show. Professor Wilford Riley from Kentucky State University is with us. His book's taboo, 10 Facts You Can't Talk About. Also, Hate Crime Hoax, How the Left is Selling a Fake Race War. We're talking about his uh, essay in the May issue of Commentary, The New Definition of Racism. Professor, looking at education outcomes, looking also at the criminal justice system, uh, we talked a bit about, you know, the importance of actually academic uh, a commitment to academic studying and uh, and 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 the like when it comes to education not probably the same answers when it comes to criminal justice I tend to lean towards family formation I'm interested in kind of some of the work Brad Wilcox has done at the University of Virginia uh, what's your sense on that the disparity in groups when it comes you you go into this in your essay and commentary I'd love love for the
2: audience to hear you out on it you know, well, it, it all comes down to the same thing, and really, the only argument that the kindie can make is sort of what's been mockingly called the creationist argument. You just move back a step and go with, yeah, I guess, the bigotry of the gap. Yeah. But I mean, so the the argument here starts with the fact that about thirty seven percent of accused violent criminals are black, and about twelve percent of Americans are black. And so again, the standard, the new Jim Crow argument is. Really, pretty simplistic. It doesn't take into account a lot of the stuff that we're going to get into in a second. It's just the justice system is racist. They're prosecuting a lot of minor fist fight cases, a lot of minor dope cases to try to lock up black people in these, these small scale thieves. And what we find is that, that that's simply not accurate, or at least it's not accurate that there are an equal number of whites doing the same kind of low grade felonies and not getting arrested. If you move away from the police totally and you move toward what's called the BJS report annually, the Bureau of Justice Statistics report, hundreds of thousands of crime victims every year are interviewed by unbiased social scientists and have to just describe the attacker, describe what happened, sort of a national attempt to reduce crime. And about 35 to 40 percent of the criminals happen to be black. That That's what's reported every year. So again, the argument, the, the first stage argument is just incredibly easy to beat. Then the next question is, well, are the Uh, Is it the case that 40% of criminals are black? Because even when you adjust for social class, there's still such intense racism in America. Mm -hmm. And again, if we look at black immigrants or Asians or Jews, there's, there's absolutely no evidence of this. Yeah, so, I'm I mean, assuming what, what, those
1: same groups that do well financially, Nigerians, Barbadians, etc I assume they're also low on the totem pole of criminal arrests. Uh, I've, I've never even
2: heard of yeah. a Jewish or Nigerian mugger. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> Chinese-American mugging gang? I mean, I don't, I don't mean to We make had Mayor smart, Lansky.
1: Sure we had Mayor Lansky once upon a time.
2: <laughs> yeah, maybe, yeah. <laughs> okay. that, well, that, that, that's exactly right. It, it's not genetic. When the Jews... This, this is a key point. I mean, Jews used to be stereotyped as great athletes and like 30% of criminals. Yeah. It sounds unbelievable, but <laughs> no. if you check out a book like Tough Jew, yeah, I mean, they'll just, yeah, they'll describe Bugsy Siegel. Yeah. I mean, these legendary Jewish criminals. And I yeah. mean, now we've moved to Jeffy Siegel, the podcast. Yeah. I mean, there's been a yeah. change in that community. But I guess, <laughs> so I guess that's the valuable question. Yeah. We haven't necessarily seen enormous drops in anti Semitism or anti Asian bias, separated at least from the fact we've seen drops in all races. Right. I right, mean, right. you know, stop Asian hate all last summer. Right. Um, we haven't seen a genetic change in the Asian or the Jewish population, but all of a sudden, you know, Chinatown or the Lower East Side of New York is no longer a violent slum. So, what changed? Right. Well, what changed has to be cultural. And I mean, again, you see very specific things learning what you'd think of as kind of mainstream American values, which include trusting the police that's not common overseas, rejection of crime. Uh, I'll just stop with one more fatherhood is big here. Yeah. Um, from everything I've ever read in the turn of the century, Irish and Jewish slums, you had the same problem that you do in black ghetto communities today. I mean, liquor was everywhere, drugs were pretty common, this is the opium era. You know, one in two, one in three dads wasn't there. And that, that's how you got Bugsy Siegel. I mean, the odds of Al Capone coming from a stable home life are zero.
1: Uh-huh.
2: You know, mm-hmm. so there there are things that we know about that predict differences in outcomes for people of the same race and the same background. And we have to those are i think there's a lot to be said for studying success instead of failure Uh, i was just
1: making that point yesterday yeah i was just making that very point you get what you study one of the things that you did interestingly in commentary and i was unfamiliar with this and i can remind you if you if you don't have it in front of you but you went into the 1930s and the non-whites non-whites making up somewhere between 20 around 25 percent of sentence prisoners what were you doing what were you seeing from the 1930s that was so relevant there i thought that was really interesting
2: Oh this is yeah thanks for reminding me yeah. this is a great point yeah. the simplest counter to the argument so like nobody denies there is some racism right even in the 1930s there was more pre- there was more of a black crime rate on average than a non-immigrant white crime rate okay and that was in part due to racism and no one denies that but one of the things that's really struck a lot of people on sort of the black right like myself Bob Woodson Glenn Lowry John McWhorter is that if you dig up textbooks about life in the black community, especially in the non-segregated North in the 1930s or 40s, yeah. you're not looking at something that looks like Bosnia or Cambodia. Right. No offense to those fine yeah, lines. No, 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 you're right. you're right. You're looking at what looks like the white neighborhood two blocks away, but slightly poorer. Right. I mean, in 1938, the black illegitimacy rate, bluntly, I mean, the out-of-wedlock, non-declared fatherhood rate, uh, was about 9%, but the famous line from Walter Williams, it, it's absolutely factual. You know, there was more, again, proportionally more black crime, but the statistic you're quoting was, I believe, 24% 24 felons. to
1: 27, I think, yeah, I was just saying 25, yeah. but yeah. Uh-huh. No, oh, yeah right. oh,
2: yeah, of course. But around around the same year happened to be black. Um, to put that in context, today the black illegitimacy rate is 72%, right? and the black percentage among all felons, about 40%, Among murderers and murder victims, about 60%. So you're no longer talking about the sort of small differences between well-performing groups that you can attribute to racism. You're talking about massive gaps that have developed during the exact same period when racism declined. And if you're really interested in how to help out black communities, or for that matter, poor white communities and Hispanic communities, you have to look at this. You can't just keep making up excuses. Racism, by almost by definition, has very little to do with the problems in the, the latter two you know, sets of, of communities.
1: That's a fascinating point, too. I only have about a minute left. I wonder if you might respond to this, because this has been my problem in this whole debate for some years now, which is <laughs> I grew up thinking racism was about the worst thing you could charge someone with. It, it's, a, it's one of the worst things a society or an individual could be possessed of. And I hate the attenuation of it, the watering down of it that has taken place, because it seems to me, Professor, that we have, with the watering down of the word, as you opened your essay with, we have watered down the toxicity of the allegation, the charge, where it truly exists, so that people don't even know what it is anymore. It's a healthy thing that racism still has a pejorative connotation to it. I just don't think that it means anything more than someone disagrees with you on uh, marginal tax rates, unfortunately. Could you take 40 seconds on that if you want?
2: Yeah, sure. Uh, To some extent, that's literally accurate. So, I mean, again, the Kendi definition is that any policy that produces a difference in group performance is racist. And, in fact, that would apply to tax policy. I mean, on average, I would suppose whites have more money, and so they pay a higher rate. Or black neighborhoods, as a result, would receive fewer services. So racism now to these people means something vague that can be directed at any policy, particularly any conservative policy. And you're, you're right. That takes away from the visceral nature of what racism is, which is bias against other human beings, your countrymen, because of who they are which is very bad, but which is something we have to keep fighting without disguising it as something else.
1: Professor Riley, you're fantastic. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your brain. The new definition of racism, that's his piece at Commentary Magazine, available online, of course, if you don't subscribe, May of this year. Professor, really, truly, for everything. Thank you, sir.
2: All right. Thanks a lot. Have a good
1: day. You you betcha. You can uh, get Wilfred Riley's books, any online bookstore you like, Amazon, whatever it is, Taboo, 10 Facts You Can't Talk About, or Hate Crime Hoax, How the Left is Selling a Fake Race War. I'm Seth Leibson, 602-508-0960. Give us a ring. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, portions of which are brought to you by Cool Touch, air conditioning, heating, and plumbing. You don't have to obviously think about heating right now, but if you have air conditioning problems or plumbing problems, call my friends at Cool Touch. I've used them uh, for everything. Uh, My friends, several of my friends have as well. They all think the same of Cool Touch as I do. Just a fantastic company. We know Chris Funk. And he's got just a hell of a team. You'll notice it's different the moment you call them. They, they, their level of customer service and care—it's, it's several cuts above. Seventeen years in business. Cool Touch has an A plus rating with the BBB. Never received a complaint with the ROC. If you have need for air conditioning repair, inspection, or service, plumbing problems, check them out. Give Cool Touch a call at six two three seven three four one nine three two. That's 623 or visit them online at CoolTouchAC.com. That's CoolTouchAC.com. <clears throat> Excuse me. One of the takeaways, <clears throat> pardon me, one of the major takeaways from uh, that discussion we just had with Professor Riley, by the way, isn't he just wonderful? I mean, you know we 're just we 're just very fortunate we don 't have a lot of social scientists political scientists we just don 't have a lot who see the world from the center right anymore The center would be the center would be divine if we could have political and social scientists from the center. You don't see that either. I mean, Wilfred Riley isn't that conservative. He's really a centrist. But because of, I know they like saying Overton Window. I don't like that word. But the threshold having been that phrase, but that threshold having been moved, he he he's a centrist. Uh, if you read his Twitter feed, he comes off as you know a conservative. I don't I don't know why he has to come off as a conservative except for the fact that you know he doesn't consider himself to go along with the craziness that is academia and liberalism and left wingism but we just don't have a lot of them anymore we just don't so we treasure that we have him it's also interesting to note as well that you know he identifies himself as a, as a as a black center right thinker it's interesting that um how precious few of those we have as well it's just it's just unfortunate that you seem to have to join a certain ideological club to be a member of a community whether it's the community of your heritage or whether it's the community of your profession it's just really sad that you are isolated because of your politics. I was thinking about this on the drive home yesterday. There is uh, someone who I have probably spent, I don't know, 10 or a dozen events with, uh, and we've had hours-long conversations, and this person is um, as political on the left as one would be, and it's a name that um, you would all know. It's a name that you would all know. We have never once had a political discussion. Everything does not have to be politicized or political. Uh, I think she has contempt for (laughs) what I say on this show, I think, or what I stand for. I certainly have contempt for her political beliefs. But, you know, it's not everything. And quite frankly, I have to think again that C.S. Lewis had it right when you think about uh, we think about politics in this country way too much when we find no zones where you can be free from it. How's he put it? A sane society should think of politics the way a sick man thinks of medicine. Yes, when needed. Obviously necessary when needed. But when it becomes your ordinary fare, when it becomes your ordinary fare, then you are looking at what you would call a sick society. Do you think we're becoming a sick society? Do you think we are in the sense that everything has become so politicized? I will tell you this. One of my objections during the entire COVID lockdown effort was that it was very clear to me there was an investment from the left and the liberal culture in this country to make us think we were a sick society. One of the reasons I was so opposed to universal masking was, as Heather MacDonald put it, I don't want to be a walking billboard of fear and panic. But more than that, why would I communicate to someone, be afraid of me, I'm sick, when I happen to, for a fact, no, I'm not. What is the investment in making us be such a down market country, such a down market commodity of a country and such a sick and unhealthy country. What is the investment in making us look so failed? You know what it is. You know what it is. You can't fundamentally transform something that's good or great. That's what it's about. Welcome back to the Seth Lipson Show. For those of you interested in a unique investment opportunity, really a remarkably unique investment opportunity, check out my friends at y Refi. They are my friends. I've gotten to know them really well. They are offering a fixed no-load interest rate up to 10.25% for investors in a secure and collateralized portfolio. They're in the business of helping people dig out a debt and do so the right way by actually paying off their debts, doing it with dignity, getting a lot of benefits along the way. What can I say about these guys? I love what they do, and I love how they do it. They're local. You can visit them. You won't get a sales pitch. They'll just tell you what it is that they do and let it speak for itself. Check them out at investyrefi.com. That's the word invest, the letter Y, then R-E-F-Y.com, investyrefi.com. Or give them a call at 855-316-3087. That's 855 855- Three one six three right, Bill, you wanted to know why I didn't like you asked me to explain why I don't like using the Overton window. Is that what you were saying? Do you use it? Do you like it? I mean, does it make sense to you? Okay. The reason I don't like using it is that I think most people don't know what it means, first of all. Second of all, um, I think it overly complicates what we're talking about in any given situation. So the Overton window is basically named after uh, – he was a libertarian scholar. To, is it James Overton? I think his name was James Overton. He passed away some few years back. Um, and he came up with this notion and it's, 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 it's basically the, um, the uh, arena or window you know, in which the acceptable dialogue takes place. Uh, if you look it up, there's another scholar who broke it down to mean how to talk about what's unthinkable, what's acceptable, what's sensible, what's popular, what's radical, and I I, I think it like the um, like the uh, value structure that uh, people cite to from Jonathan Haidt over at Columbia. They love talking about you know his his system of values. I just think it overly complicates a simple thing or two simple things. The first simple thing is um, the first rule of politics, as Irving Kristol said, there are people that will disagree with you. There are people that will disagree with you. That's that's the first thing. And I think Jonathan hates analysis just is, is overly complicating of that point. Not everyone agrees in an open society any more than in a closed society. They have different perspectives. Once we understand that, this is something that Democrats do not, by the way, understand. They don't understand that. That's why they're trying to write us out of off the stage. That's why we're trying to be made intermention. That's why we are, according to the chairman of the DNC, a party of fascism. Um, the other thing that I think it overly complicates when it could be simple is simply talking about what the left believes and what the right believes and people say, well, well, the Overton window keeps shifting and moving as a dismiss as a way to dismiss the very serious point, which is how far the left has moved as opposed to the conservative movement and the right and where it has basically situated and stayed for a while. Um, that's why. I'd, 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 so, I you know, let's just talk about the radicalism of the left without dealing with the Overton window. It sounds kind of like a, what does it sound like? It sounds like a Clancy novel, doesn't it? A little bit, doesn't it? The Overton window has shifted. And then you start thinking about what does that mean rather than what the person is saying. That's the problem with using, I think, methods obscure or phraseology obscure to define a fairly simple thing that most people could apprehend if you just explain it to them. Here, I'll do it. The left has moved further and further to the left, increasingly so. Uh, when I was in college, there were no self-declared socialists in Congress. Today, there are at least eight in the Democratic Party. That's a shift. That's a change. You know, we just kind of funnily accept that too, don't we? We almost nominated him to be one of them to be the president, uh, presidential nominee of the Democratic Party. He came in twice, two times now. Came in second, sorry, two times now. Came in second two times now. And we just kind of go along with it. (laughs) Not that everyone would want to, obviously, but you just don't see the Republicans doing that. Republicans are Republicans and they don't affiliate with what would be the opposite of the Socialist Party in America. What would be its opposite on the other side? Well, you know damn well what it would be. And we don't do that. We don't go there. We have enough understanding and appreciation of history to know that these regimes, whether imperfectly or perfectly tried, have no business operating in the United States of America. We guarantee a Republican form of government in Article 4 of our Constitution. Does anyone remember that anymore? We guarantee a Republican form of government here. I don't know how you can have that constitutional guarantee and allow for the speech, never mind, Political, um, political, ob- uh, political operations and mechanisms of socialism and communism. I just it, 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 it's, it's, a, it's a daily constitutional violation as far as I'm concerned, a daily constitutional violation. What you do have in the Republican Party, on the other hand, is a bit of a cognitive dissonance about what it means to be a Republican anymore. You hear that all the time. People throw, I don't even know what a Republican is anymore. Well, do you know what a Democrat is? Do you know what a Democrat stands for? You know, it's a very different thing when you ask people or when you asked people what they were voting for when they were voting for Joe Biden as to what the Biden administration and its policies have become. They're two very different things. And a lot of us warned, warned this about the democratic party that i don't give two hoots what joe biden says what he believes and what his administration will do has nothing to do with what you moderate democrats think you're voting for nothing zero the moderacy of the democratic this is a funny thing joe biden likes to talk about this isn't your father's republican party anymore let me tell you something it's not your father's democratic party it's not your grandfather's democratic party it's the Democratic Party has changed far more than the Republican Party. I'll give, you a, I'll give you a for instance. You look at the best appointments Ronald Reagan made, let's say, to the Supreme Court, for example. Let's say Nino Scalia, Antonin Scalia. Let's say that was his—would you say that was Ronald Reagan's best Supreme Court nomination? Of course it was. Clarence Thomas was on George H.W. Bush's watch. They each had a couple lemons, too. But if you think about Scalia being the most proud nominee of the Reagan administration, think about the kinds of nominees Donald Trump gave you that led to the Supreme Court opinion I read you earlier in the show today, just out of Maine on the First Amendment and religious freedom. You look at the tax cuts that Donald Trump enacted And you look at the Ronald Reagan administration's tax cuts. You look at the views on issues from life to race. The party hasn't changed. Not ours. Not ours. Democratic Party? It's a party that wanted nothing to do with the radicals once upon a time. Not the radicals of the 70s. Not the radicals of the 60s. Now, they give them jobs in the administration. Heck, they even make a vice president of one who created a fund to bail the radicals out of jail. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, portions of which are brought to you by Balance of Nature. I take it every single day. Favorite product I've ever taken. I just love it. All natural, 100% natural, including the capsules that they come in, which you can open up and sprinkle into food and water if you prefer. They're designed that way, but they're normal capsules. You just take them once a day, and you get 10 servings of fruits and vegetables from 100% produce, 100% fruits and vegetables. Third-party tested for everything, metals, impurities, you name it. Nothing added, zero zilch. Balanceofnature.com is where you can get these fruits and veggies Just make sure to use discount code BALANCE. You will improve your health. You will boost your energy. You will boost your immunity. Why wouldn't you want to do any of that? You want to do all of it. Okay. One of the things I just combining everything we were talking about in this past hour, I don't know how many of you remember in 2018, there was this official in the Trump administration who wrote an op-ed in The New York Times And they allowed him to go by the name Anonymous. They allowed him to hold back his name. He claimed he was a senior official in the administration. And he said uh, in that op-ed, many of us senior officials in this administration, the Trump administration, are working diligently from within to frustrate parts of Trump's agenda and his worst inclinations. I would know I'm one of them. The title of the op-ed is, I am part of the resistance inside the Trump administration. Uh, when uh, when that op-ed was published, New York Times editors would go on television and say, while the man was still protecting his anonymity, is a very senior official, someone we would all know. Well, <clears throat> it was uh, chief of staff to a de- Department of Homeland Security, a position no one even probably knew existed. His name was Miles Taylor. No one outside of his family probably or friends knew who he was, and now – guess where he works msnbc msnbc speaking of um syntactical saturation and diminishing the value of words this was him today on the uh january 6th hearings
2: and we've seen this before in democratic societies political intimidation leading to political violence god forbid leading to political assassinations you know where we've seen it we've seen it in the weimar republic in Germany, before the rise of Hitler. It's not hyperbole to draw those comparisons because we saw...
1: Yes, it is. I'm sorry. Yes, it is hyperbole to draw those comparisons. Everything, Leo Strauss called this reductio ad Hitlerum. Not everything is Hitler. If everything is Hitler, nothing is. And that's what you folks, that's what you on the left have done. You have robbed Hitler of his toxicity because you have made everything Hitler just as you have made everything racism. You have deprived us of the difference between good and evil. You have deprived us of the ability to judge between right and wrong because you have taken the worst excesses, the worst examples, the worst totems, the best illustrations of wrong, and diminished it to mean nothing more than we disagree with your energy policy. Once you disappear the difference, once you vanish the distinction between Good and evil. You're in Nietzsche's territory beyond good and evil. And you have no ability anymore to make distinctions of any qualitative value whatsoever. And so everything becomes one thing. It's what they want.